Hello, everyone, and welcome to Irenicast. On the first and third Tuesday of every month, we bring to you our perspectives on theology and culture from a post-evangelical lens. This week, all of the other co-hosts are on assignment, and I had the pleasure of sitting down with Elizabeth Jeffries, PhD, author of the brand new book called Through the Kaleidoscope, How Exploring Cell Biology Transforms My Relationship with God. I'm really excited to present this interview with you. Elizabeth has such a great perspective on things and how her work in microbiology has given her these, these metaphors for life and faith. And it's just, it's just a wonderful, it's a great book. It's a great conversation. And as usual, for all the ways that you can purchase this book or follow Elizabeth on all different social media platforms, all that will be in the show notes at irenicast.com slash 146. And uh, we've had a couple interviews. We haven't had a regular episode. And uh, just as a quick teaser, so to speak, let's just say that the first and third Tuesday of July might not be the only times that you get to hear our voice. So stay tuned to the the podcast feed. Subscribe if you haven't already to make sure that you don't miss any episodes that we regularly put out or maybe episodes that might come out randomly that are a surprise. You never know. Uh, so that out of the way, uh, let's get into this conversation that I had this week with Elizabeth Jeffries. As I said in the, the introduction, uh, we're talking with Elizabeth Jeffries, PhD, writer of the new book, Through the Kaleidoscope, How Exploring Cell Biology Transforms My Relationship with God. Uh, this is a great book. I mean, we awesome. talked about this off, off air, but uh, I really enjoyed it. And I have so many questions. So before we get to the actual book itself, I'm curious, as uh, what's the technical title. Um, are you like, what kind of biologist? I want to make sure that I get all that right. Yeah. Molecular biologist molecular. would be the most, uh, you know, would probably be the most appropriate term. But really, in scientific research, all of these divisions tend to blur together anyway. <laughs> and my, my training is actually from a chemistry department. So my background, my degree is in chemistry, but then all of my work has been in the biological field, mostly molecular biology. So Simple answer, just molecular biology, but longer answer, it's like all of the above. They just all blur together. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay. So then that's that's helpful. So as a molecular biologist, what? how do you go from that to writing a book? Like what compelled mm. you to tell this story and share these particular insights? That's a great question because, you know, typically science is conducted in – in my case, it was in academic environments. So you're, you know, you're sort of in this silo, uh, separate from the rest of the of the world, like kind of, you know, we just sit in labs and tinker with things and try to solve problems. It's very easy to separate that from the rest of life, you know. In my case, what inspired me to write the book was I, I kept encountering as I would be reading academic papers. I kept encountering, usually it was just a side comment about a certain biological phenomenon that would strike me as so profound. But the author of this paper wasn't really interested in that profound statement. They were interested in the data, the results of, of these experiments that they were conducting. For instance, uh, I read that 
biological, uh, biologically, a bacterial cell, a human cell, really any type of cell is capable of transferring portions of its genetic code to other neighboring cells for kind of no reason at all. Like they'll just sort of swap genes and it's called horizontal gene transfer. And I have a whole chapter about this in the book. Um, And when I read about that, it it was just mentioned so casually in this paper. Uh, It was a paper where they were tracking the transfer of genes between bacterial cells. And it, it just struck me as so wild that identifying information could be transferred from one cell to another for no reason other than proximity. So what I started to do was every every time one of these observations would just strike me as so absurd or so profound. And sometimes I, I felt like these observations would give me an insight into human life. So I started to write them down. And I I filled up notebooks just with my reflections. Like, this is a thing that cells do, and it gives me some type of insight into an aspect of being a human. You know, for instance, back to this um, horizontal gene transfer, the way that we pick up things from our environments, you know, the way that we pick up even habits or traits from the people around us, and we don't even notice it. And then over time, a cell, if that gene that's been acquired by horizontal gene transfer, if it no longer serves a purpose, the cell will often just delete it out of its genome. And that was just a beautiful metaphor to me of what it, what we have the freedom to do as people, you know, things in our lives that are serving no meaningful function for us. We have the freedom to just let go of them. And these patterns I started to see in biology, they're not the point of biological research, you know, like the authors who were writing this paper about horizontal gene transfer, they weren't really interested in the implications of these, um, you know, of these like bigger picture patterns, the, the implications of those for human life. So I started to realize, like, you know, I think that just regular people who aren't necessarily interested in biological research would really get a lot out of this. Like this, this is really fascinating and kind of a, um, a rich metaphor for the human life. So what if I write this down in a way that leaves aside the biological jargon and the data and the, you know, the quantification? Because that's not the point of what I want to explore. I want to explore the ways that biology, the ways that nature can Give us a new way to see life. Yeah, that really was my inspiration. I started to fill up those notebooks and eventually I started to realize, like, you know, I I think this is a book. I think I can weave my own personal story in here and pull some things out using these biological metaphors. It brings some things to life using those lenses. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. I like how you 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 
I don't know if you coined the term, but I like it, the biological parables and how you, yeah, you correlated yeah. it with that imagery. Cause I think that that's, I think that's good because there's a lot of wiggle room within the, the interpretation of it, but then the science is still right. what the science is and uh, the implications of that can extend beyond, like you were saying, the research paper. And I really, really appreciated that because I don't, I'm not a science person person i cheated my way through all my science classes uh <laughs> nice <laughs> and you know I, I i'm fascinated by it and i love listening to it but when it gets down to like too technical i lose track so your book and right. the martian are the two books that i've read that where like i read the science and i'm like oh like the way that it's written i really appreciate it because as of someone oh, who's awesome. not inclined scientifically uh, it, it did, it brought that stuff out of the pages. So I really, I really appreciated that about this book because it gave me a simpleton in terms of <laughs> science, a, a grounding to be able to, to relate with what you were talking about. So it was really, really, really well done. Um, Good. That's, that's wonderful to hear. And that really, that was my full intention of, as I was writing. I, I tried so hard to leave aside, you know, terms and jargon and even explanations that wouldn't be part of just an everyday vocabulary, you know. Um, so that's great to hear. Well, it worked. So <laughs> Good. <laughs> I, I definitely appreciated it. So so then how did how did the because I'm assuming that at some point you had like conversations with people where you would share some of these reflections or even uh, some sort of lecture where that kind of sparked like, oh, there's a, a not to you not to be too marketing, but there's an audience for this. Like people need to hear sure. this. And then did you also take into account like kind of the landscape that we're in in terms of this? I don't know, progressive, Christian, ex-evangelical, you know, this, all the terms that kind of encompass this space that we're in. Did you kind of look at that and see, wait, not only are people responding individually to this, but there's kind of, and I've noticed that there's, there's a, a gap in this particular area for direct, like, revelation through scientific discovery. Absolutely. I left traditional church and traditional well, really fundamentalism, fundamentalist evangelical Christianity. Um, actually, four years ago yesterday was the anniversary of the Supreme Court marriage equality amendment. And that was like the final signal that it was time for me to move on, that I was no longer aligned with where the evangelical church was going and has continued to go. So yeah, that is my story, leaving a, a system that was handed to me. I grew up evangelical. And after fully, I mean, it, four years ago, but it was much longer than that, that my kind of this time of doubting and questioning and how do we really know, that took a much longer time. But as I went through that, I personally really struggled with, well, how do I now navigate the world? You know, the Bible is the literal truth and inerrant and the absolute word of God that we can take literally. That no longer works for me. So where do I go now? You know, how do I conduct my life? How do I navigate my life? How do I tell even just right from wrong and healthy from unhealthy? And for me personally, I have always found so much inspiration in nature. And that's true from my work in biology 
up to this just macro level, enjoying our, you know, enjoying our surroundings, enjoying the sunshine, um, enjoying the out of doors. I've always found inspiration in nature. I find it to be so grounding that our bodies are made of these components that just naturally work together, naturally figure out how to keep living, how to keep surviving. There's an innate drive towards survival in us physically that I find inspiring and that I find grounding. And what I found then, I find myself surrounded by a lot of other people who are also grappling with how do I navigate the world post-evangelicalism, post-fundamentalism? And what I've found is that it, when I speak about nature and when I would start to bring up the themes of this book, it would click with others. And that that also, that was a huge inspiration to me. There was a period of time where I just kept these notebooks to myself. It was just sort of like this journaling habit that I developed um, and when I started to share with other people, I, I found that it really, it clicked, it, you know, and it helped other people as well. Like, oh, there are themes, there are patterns that are just in the earth, that are just in our natural, our natural surroundings and also our natural bodies. Our bodies are telling us something about how to live, how to work together, you know, um, how to live in reciprocity, to live in community. Yeah. So I, I found that it, it offered me and also the friends that I started to share these stories with, it offered us kind of this new, a new paradigm. If we're leaving behind these rigid structures that are kind of rigid in ways that are excluding people, rigid in ways that are bringing us shame and pain, we can pick up something else. We can look to other sources. There are other rivers we can go swim in, you know? We, um, right, right. And, and those rivers are much deeper and have been flowing for much longer. You know, the natural world, like it doesn't get any more foundational and fundamental than that, you know, than what our bodies are made of, right? And that's so interesting to me because, you know, we talk about our bodies a lot. It seems to be a common theme in kind of our space because a lot of us were taught for so long to kind of deny that aspect or, you know, ashes mm -hmm. to ashes, dust or dust, you're going to be resurrected, whatever theology we land in. And um, I, I always think it's interesting, like it's how, how our experience affects our body and then how our setting affects our body. Uh, but it's not something we talk about a lot is how our body affects our body. Like we've recently had an episode mm. where we talked about the idea of how cosmology shapes our language for who God is. And I believe that uh, our experiences, like the more that we hear from people of color, from women, from the LGBTQ community, it expands our language for who God is. But I also think the true is if we look kind of internal. And I almost consider the, the, the things that you're studying and the things that you talk about in this book in terms of like microbiology and kind of going inward as part of that cosmology discussion because it broadens our our language and our understanding for who God is. We only had such restrictive language to talk about before in in our religious context. Right. Uh, and that uh, you know that really leads to the title of the book. I grew up with such a 
firm, rigid idea of what truth is and and what I can trust, you know, what I can trust as a source of inspiration, a source of knowledge, a source of wisdom. And as my personal deconstruction has progressed, and as I've kind of come to incorporate all of these other sources of knowledge, like you said, cosmology, you know, I our entire vocabulary. That's so true. Our vocabulary about God, you know, stretching back to ancient times has all stemmed from what we know about this, about outer space um, and what we knew back, you know, way back when about outer space. So that's a source of knowledge. Our bodies are a source of knowledge. Our experiences are a source of knowledge and our relationships are a source of knowledge. So as I started to kind of bring in all of these, uh, you know, all of these ideas, all of these sources of knowledge, I started to imagine instead of looking at one fixed image, it's like you're turning a kaleidoscope. It's like you're seeing through all of these different lenses, no image that you see through a kaleidoscope is more real or more true than any other. But you can keep turning infinitely and keep seeing new arrangements, new mesmerizing images. Right. So that's a, that's exactly what this process of writing the book brought me to was a just a new place of welcoming knowledge from wider and wider sources, wider and wider spaces. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and that's what I loved. Like the, there's these subtle insights that I was reading the book that really kind of gave me a window into kind of your approach to all this. And one of the, the quotes that I, I even highlighted it because it was really interesting. I want to read it real quick. It said, rebellion seemed like the most reckless and foolish form of independence. And there's this, this, this is a great thread throughout the book, almost like a subtle irony. Like you were brought into the system that on the surface should be very comfortable for you in terms of like, it's set, it's rigid, there's an explanation for this. And that drive takes you into another, another form of, you know, on the surface, at least of, you know, rigid, like, here's the rules, I just follow this. And how that was what led you to this place to be able to hold paradox in a way that you might not have been able to before. And it's such a refreshing change of pace, because I know a lot of our spaces not not and this is i don't mean this as a negative thing because i think it's an important part of of the whole kaleidoscope so to speak of mm-hmm. of our space that there's there's a place for rebellion there's a place for pushing against the system but it's it's refreshing to hear that even within a solid framework or foundation you can still find these these places of mystery and absolutely and hold them the way that you do in this book. And uh, Mm. so tell me a little bit about, was there ever like a moment where you kind of saw the connection and, and, and really like were in awe of that whole idea of, I I went to seek answers, like almost like Mm. the posture of Mm -hmm. proving as opposed to the posture of discovery and where that transition for you might've happened. I feel in my experience that there really was never a point uh, you know, along my kind of my ramp up to I can't stay in the evangelical church along that course, there was never a point where I just was ready to throw the whole thing out. I earnestly believed 
it, there has to be something here. I, you know, there were enough experiences when I was young that truly, and I mean, a lot of these are in the book a lot. And there are a lot of references to even things like prophetic ministry that I received that I really, I can't throw it out. You know, I can't throw out all of this stuff. And that's even one that a lot of evangelicals have differing opinions on. But for me, in my experience, there were enough little seeds along the way that gave me a clue, like, there's something here. There's something here. You might have to push past a lot of noise to get to it, but there's something here. And yeah, I felt like I had to go the whole way through it. You can leave your faith by avoiding it, or you can leave your faith by taking it to its full logical conclusion. You know, right. maybe it's just something in my personality, or maybe it was something about the, the particular church that I was in, but there was always just this determination in me. Like, no, you tell me X, I am going to take X to its full conclusion. I'm going to take it the whole way and we'll see where we land. You know, I took it seriously. I took everything seriously. What I have found is that there were there were these seeds along the way. There were these pieces along the way that I, I feel I've been able to bring with me. And I don't know if that would be if I would have been able to hang on to those pieces if I, you know, if I had a sharp break with my faith or a point where I, you know, all right, I've got to throw out this whole thing. It was more a steady progression where at each step I was just like dropping one little piece, <laughs> dropping one little piece, you know, and then um, at this stage, it's like, all right. Here's what I've got left. Here are the sources of knowledge that I feel like I can trust and we'll see where it goes, you know. And that's also part of why the title of the book or the subtitle of the book is the way it is. Um, but exploring my relation or exploring cell biology transforms my relationship with God because I see this as a steady continuing transformation. And there wasn't there wasn't a sharp, like one day that I can pinpoint as, you know, this is the day that my, that I left behind my old way of seeing the world. It was just, it was like this long, steady progression. And maybe part of that was just sort of a defiant, like, all right, if Jesus and God and everything really is exactly the way they're telling me. I want to make sure that they don't have anything like that. They've got nothing on me. Do you know what I mean? Like, right. <laughs> all right, if I die and this turns out to be true, I want to make sure I'm still okay. <laughs> I think for a while that, you know, that was my stance. Um, I don't want them to have anything like nothing in my file against me. <laughs> right. Um, well, some of us, you know, we we expose the system by breaking the rules and then others of us yeah. we fully embrace the rules to show the ridiculousness of them, right? Like and I right. love that approach to it. And I've often said like the reason I'm not an evangelical anymore is because of the values evangelicalism instilled in me, right? It put me oh, down my this goodness. path. Yes. 
for for discovery and exploration and i still hold on to those values and i feel like you know that that old setting kind of rejected those values in a way and i I related a lot to your stories of being in church it sounds like you were in a pentecostal atmosphere and yeah yeah pentecostal charismatic yeah kind of a like a fundamentalist approach to the bible and to doctrine but the whole speaking in tongues laying on of hands all of that right the 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 altar calls and and the, uh-huh. the prophets i have letters from old youth pastors who you know wrote prophecies for me similar to the wow. tape that you describe in your yeah. uh, in your book and it's it's such a it's such a unique subset of evangelicalism right it's a maybe a small subset if you're gonna take one subset really seriously i i feel like i was in a good church to really take it seriously because there were not many people going to our church who just kind of went casually (laughs) like you couldn't stay there if you were just kind of yeah i'm gonna show up and you know say hi to some people like this was Almost every night of the week, we had something, you know, and you're at church all morning on Sunday, you're back there Sunday night for a class or, you know, um, it was such a an immersive environment. And I was homeschooled as well. So, you know, we had Bible every day, we had devotions as a as a homeschool family, like it, it was always, always a part of my life. So I mean, depending on how you look at it, it was either like a beautiful synergy or like a terrible storm <laughs> like that uh, this combined with my personality where I was just like, no, I'm going to take this seriously. I'm going to I'm going to actually believe the things that I'm being told and we'll see where I land. <laughs> you know, um, it all matched up perfectly. <laughs> so so this is my question is then how do you go from that setting to science, right? Because mm-hmm. I remember in that setting, science being essentially the devil, right? Like I'm sure you got the classes of like, here's why the earth is 6,000 years old and here's why oh, scientists yeah. are wrong. So in the midst of that, how does how does number one how does your love for science spark and then number two what is your posture headed into a non-religious quote-unquote secular college from being homeschooled into the area of the sciences uh is your posture one of evangelism like learning to change or because i this is kind of scattered but i get the sense that a lot of what was going on was internal for you in terms of like your questions and the things that you were struggling with, that if anyone saw you on the outside, they would have had, and I get that indication from the story at the end of your book that no one would have understood what was actually happened. So, uh, so what sparked your, your, to just to reframe since I got a little sidetracked, what sparked your, uh, love for science in that particular culture? And then what was your posture headed into going into that as, as an actual discipline for your, for your movement forward? Yeah, that, those are great questions. I, as far as sparking my love for science, I really, I feel like I didn't really have much of a choice. Like in me, there was something that just, it was like part of my internal processing, like, you know, part of my operating system just said, you're going to study science. This is what you love. This is what you must do with your life. I mean, from the time I was so little. I've just been fascinated. Um, I remember when I was like preschool age, the first time that I 
I asked one of my parents probably what science is like, you know, what, what do scientists do? And they explained it to me. And I remember this feeling, wait, so there's stuff that we don't know yet about the way the world works, like, and about animals and plants and outer space. Like, how is that possible? We've built all these, you know, cities and cars and stuff like the world just felt very, um, it all felt very put together for me, you know, as a little kid. I was like, we've, we've everything. How do we not have, like, how do we not know what's going on in outer space? How's that possible? Um, and there was something in me that started even that young. Like, I, I want to be on that frontier, so to speak. I want to be exploring new things. So that, that's when that spark happened. And it really, uh, I never even considered, going in any other direction with my, you know, with my career vocation. Then as I got older, it was always my, just my strongest interest. And was there any ever pushback against that? Really? No. My parents were so encouraging of it. I think they saw my interest and um, I, I remember a little bit of a of an encouragement to like, oh, won't this be wonderful? You'll be able to evangelize all of these, you know, all of these scientists who don't know Jesus yet. Um, and so there was a little bit of that, but really, I always felt encouraged in it. I always felt uh, supported, and I was always led to believe that this would be a worthwhile pursuit. You know, this would be a good thing to do with my life. Really, my like my science. So I was homeschooled the whole way through high school, uh, you know, through the end of high school. And my science curriculum was always it, like written and published by a Christian, it, like young earth creationist, you know, so always from this perspective. And there would be entire, I remember just like entire chapters about like why we can't trust the fossil record, you know, and and looking back (laughs) on it now, I'm like, who asked you about the fossil record? Like, I wasn't curious about that. But why did you bring bring this up? But it, it was such an important part of these textbooks to make sure that we knew, you know, that you can't trust that. But I remember even even in my parents and definitely in me, there was always this, I always felt a sense of suspicion. Like, come on, are we really not supposed to trust, you know, like the same people who made penicillin, we're not supposed to trust them. Um, you know, a good um, point, right? <laughs> we wouldn't like, we wouldn't have hospitals if scientists were just telling us a bunch of lies. I, I never got a strong, you know, from my family from the people who are close to me, I never got a strong sense of like, you've got to be careful out there. The scientists are going to corrupt you. Um, I mean, we believed that about everybody in the world, but there was no, there was no specific distrust of science. So yeah, that, that little spark of an interest that started when I was really little, that was just always, always cultivated as I was growing up. Then going into college, so you felt pretty confident in terms of this is a career path I can go. I've been encouraged by my Mm -hmm. family, Uh, maybe some things here and there from the church that were anti or whatever. But you, you, what were some of your kind of milestone steps when you were in college that kind of started 
not necessarily, well, I guess shaking the foundation of, you know, science and where, like, what were some of the things you remember that were immediately incompatible that you had to really reckon with? When I went to college, I was 18 years old and I had never, I had never been in an educational setting that wasn't homeschool. I had been, um, and really I was homeschooled along with a lot of other students in my church, you know, so I was pretty surrounded by people who saw the world exactly the way that I did. And that belief was never really challenged. You know, I never really had to do any type of introspection into my faith. I mean, I still did, but very, very internally. And there was nothing pushing me toward that. There was no reason for me to question my faith because I had never met one of these people who we would say were <laughs> sinners, right? Like, and, right. and if I did meet them, it was like, hello, good evening. Do you know where you're going to go to hell? Or do you know if you're going to go to heaven or hell when you die? You know, um, it was, it, we were never like actually in community with people who saw the world differently or people who are part of a group that was excluded by our church. Uh, so when I went to college, I, I was dropped into an environment. I went to a public university. So I was dropped into an environment where I knew some Christians on campus, of course. Um, I was very like careful to find my, my Christian friends right away. Uh, but I was also, I was surrounded by people who saw the world all sorts of different ways and people who were part of some of the groups that we had decided, you know, were, were evil. So like my very, I, this is in the very introduction of the book when I went to college and for the very first time I met someone who was gay and I had heard a lot of teaching about how it's wrong to be gay and how this is bad and God hates it. But never in my life had I had a conversation, you know, with someone who is part of the LGBT community. So actually, it, it was like this rubber hitting the road moment with a lot of these these rigid beliefs. Like, and again, back to my stance, I approach things like, all right, if I am going to be a part of a church that preaches that it's wrong to be gay, then I have to take this to the natural, you know, to its full conclusion. Um, I have to take this the whole way. And if that is true, then that means my friend Joe is going to hell. Like, I can't live my life believing that. I can't live my life believing that about this person who is who is a great person, you know? And I explore that, that story as simple as it was um, of just face-to-face -face looking someone in the eye, having a conversation, becoming friends with a person. It completely changed my view of the of the way that we would evangelize, the way that we would approach people and knowing nothing about their lives, tell them what God thinks of their lives. You know, it the absurdity of that just became very obvious to me when I, you know, when I developed relationships, when I actually put myself in an environment where 
I would meet, you know, I would uh, more than um, more than just walking up to someone and saying, hi, I think you're going to hell when you die. Like (laughs) um, actually having a relationship with somebody, it changed the way I saw everything. So what you're saying is that God's not dead is not an accurate description of college life for a Christian. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Well, so there's, oh man, I feel like there's so many things I, I want to go through. Well, one of the things, kind of going back to what we talked about in the beginning, that I mm-hmm. really found interesting in line with this theme of how a certain framework and a certain perspective with the same idea can can change mm. how we respond to it. But when you talked about the, and I forget the name of the cell, but that idea of identity by mm-hmm. proximity, mm-hmm. where you, you kind of take on just because you're near that thing. Uh, it's it's funny that that's kind of the basis, the idea is the basis of fear in a lot of evangelicalism, right? If you go there, then oh, you're going to yeah. become like them. You're going to do all that kind of stuff. But how that brought you that freedom. And then just the, the science behind that idea on how you came to that idea, because a lot of us will come to that that profound revelation by encountering other people's experiences. So can you kind of for us uh, <laughs> as a novice scientist or whatever, explain a little bit in that chapter, like what do you mean by identity by proximity? Because you related that cell formation to your own search for uh, identity in Christ, you know, that term that we use a lot. So, right, right. Yeah. So, I biologically, there's really no more foundational manifestation of identity than DNA our genetic code. And we think of this as this, like it, you know, sort of like a computer program or this code that defines who we are. And we think of it as an unchanging identifying piece. So, you know, if, if your DNA changes, that that's a different person, right? Like it's not going to change for your entire life. The reality though of genetics is that there is a dynamic aspect to genetic identity. And this was actually discovered in bacterial cells. Scientists who were studying the transfer or the the spread of bacterial resistance to antibiotics, they discovered that resistance was spreading way too fast. It wouldn't be long enough for resistance to be inherited by an, a new generation. That amount of time would not have elapsed, and the entire bacterial population was already resistant on a genetic level. So somehow, the genetic code of a bacterial cell that's way over there is changing on the basis of a stimulus that it never received. So there's some type of, it's like this, it's almost like a contagion, the way, you know, the way that this resistance gene would spread throughout the population. And and as I mentioned earlier, that acquired gene, the cell then later in its life does have sort of a, an autonomy, an ability to let go of a gene that doesn't serve its purpose, that doesn't, you know, provide it some meaningful function. So I started to see that as a as a metaphor uh, for the ways that our identities can shift and change over time, and the power that we have, the freedom that we have to 
take on things we want to take on and to let go of things that we want to let go of. And, you know, when we think of that, we can either see it as kind of a fearful oh no, what's going to happen to me? (laughs) Um, Right. Uh You know, we can see it in that light or we can see it as like, oh, what a, like, what a playground we find ourselves Mm. in. What a, you know, what a fun experiment this could be to try something new and see if it fits. If it does, great. If it doesn't, let it go and move on. And all throughout that, transition, I stay the same. I stay the same person. You know, there's a continuity in my identity throughout these transitions, but there can still be this dynamic aspect um, to our identity. Right. Yeah. I love, I love that. I remember kind of this, this idea, like the double-edged sword of all these metaphors. And I suppose that's the nature of a metaphor, right? It's open-ended enough to where we can all take our perspective from it. But I think that behind all that, there's something very profound to be said about our proximity to things and how they form and shape or keep us stagnant. Right. Uh, There was a lot of talk in my church about the slippery slope, you know? Yes. Yeah. Like, oh, if you you take one step, it's just going to, you're just downhill. Um, And then oddly enough, in my freshman year logic class in college, we learned about the the slippery slope fallacy was one of the logical fallacies that we learned about. And I was like, oh, <laughs> it's, it, maybe it's not true. <laughs> maybe, um, maybe. <laughs> right. But seeing this pattern in nature, it almost gives me a sense of comfort. Like, mm. oh, we're... We're all changing. We're all transforming down to ourselves. The only thing that's constant throughout life, throughout orders of magnitude of life, the only thing that's constant is change, transformation. We're always shifting, always changing. Right. Yeah. It's it's nice to see that uh, that's part of uh, how we kind of just live and that it's exactly it's okay because i think people have a conflicting relationship with change if at all possible we want to avoid it and i think that uh knowing that it's just part of the cycle of where we're at exactly. is comforting exactly it's you know it, and it's scary it's scary to see transformation and not all you know even on a biological level not all change is beautiful and comfortable and good you know right there's also decay and degeneration. Um, it's all a cycle. It's all of it is a cycle. But there's so much joy to be found in leaning in and surrendering to that cycle and recognizing this is this is what we were born into. We were born into a dynamic system of change and and even of aging. You know things break down, things wear out, even our bodies, our bodies are finite. And recognizing that and embracing it, for me, gives me so much joy and gives me a sense of a sense of just wanting to embrace what we have now. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and just just that it's going to happen anyway, right? And exactly. That the, and and that kind of brings me to this next thing that I I didn't have a problem with in terms of like disagreeing because I agree with it, but I have more of a problem with like accepting it. So this this notion that you talk about uh of participation versus contribution. Mm, and right. that really hits home for me, right? So I feel that my I have a tendency to lean towards my value being what am I contributing, uh, not just that I'm participating. And uh, so kind of unpack that a little bit. Like w- when you talk about that idea of participation versus contribution, uh, what do you mean? And then what what was that the scientific revelation that kind of fleshed out that metaphor for you? I think it's very natural and normal that you say you say you feel like your value is in your your contribution i i feel like that's a part of what we're taught i i mean certainly in the us it, it's just part of our language and and what i find is that in in the evangelical church there's kind of an added layer emphasizing the importance of contributing the importance of doing something, giving something, having some type of fruit, right? For, you know, the fruit of your, of your faith, like, you know, your, your faith is supposed to have real tangible outcomes. Um, And in my church, that was usually, you know, usually we would look to things like, well, how many people have you preached the gospel to? And even like your family relationships, there was so much pressure, like your marriage would be the fruit of your faith, you know, your relationship with your family, all of these things would be fruit or an outcome. And it was always on the brink of crisis, right? You're just one step away from everything falling apart, right? Right, right. Absolutely. So much pressure. And also our contribution that there was a lot of pressure to do things for the church, to serve the church. Um, and in, in my case, and I think this is the case for a lot of evangelical churches, we were a freestanding, not part of a denomination, um, really uh, functioning on tithes and offerings, really, that, you know, that was keeping our church in business, you know, that was paying the mortgage of the building um, and the pastor's salaries, everything. So there was a lot of pressure to donate financially, um, to serve, you know, to volunteer, teaching the kids and leading the worship, all, all of these things that can be a really healthy, that can be a really healthy way to build a community. And it can also be a very manipulative way to guilt people. Uh, If you've experienced any type of freedom or joy or peace in your life as a result of this church, then you owe it um, to this church. There's kind of a dark side of that model of community building. And from my perspective, growing up in that, I got a really consistent message that if you're going to be part of this community, you need to do something. You need to contribute in some way and the insinuation was sort of like you owe it to this group you're participating in to give something back you know to serve so as i kind of got older this didn't sit well with me you know personally as i started to go through phases of my life where i was i was grappling with my faith i was struggling with my faith and i didn't feel like i was in a place 
to, you know, to really serve or contribute or be the person who at church who's like giving out the pamphlets, you know, and smiling at everyone or the person who's on the worship team or, you know, I didn't feel capable of being um, a contributor. And that for me translated into a lot of shame and a lot of guilt. You know, I don't even deserve to be a part of this community. I don't deserve to be just taking up space in this if I'm not giving back in some way. And then over the course of it, you know, going through school and then working in the field of biology, I learned about this phase of cellular life called quiescence. And quiescence is a phase of dormancy in cellular life. So replication pretty much stops. And and most of our healthy, normal cells, cells that are in a normal phase of life in our bodies are constantly making new replacement cells. There's a constant turnover. Um, quiescent cells don't do that, though. They slow down. They stop making most of, you know, most of the protein products of their normal lives. They stop producing those. And all they do is sit and take up resources, <laughs> uh, take up energy, and they don't really give much to their environment. When scientists first discovered this phase of life, there seems to have been an assumption that this is a maybe a response to scarcity. Like, it, you know, if, if the body is not able to find, like if food is scarce and um, resources are scarce, maybe they shut down part of their cells. Like maybe this is like a defense mechanism. That was a, an assumption. Um, if the cell is not in a favorable environment, maybe it enters quiescence as a way of protecting itself. Um, or maybe something goes wrong. Maybe quiescent cells are just broken, like they're on on the way to dying or something. But then what baffled the scientific community was the discovery that most of the cells in a human body, an adult human body, are quiescent. Most of our cells are in this phase of dormancy. And if you look at uh, different kinds of organisms, you know, from small insects up through humans, um, so different sizes and different lifespans, if you arrange animals in that way, the animals that are larger in adulthood and that have longer lifespans have a higher proportion of quiescent cells in their bodies. And what happens is over time, those quiescent cells can get called back into action. So as the body ages, you know, we uh, humans, we live the majority of our lifetimes as our adult, you know, in our adult size. So we we go through this very rapid phase of growth in childhood, and then we have just decades and decades um, where we're living, um, not really growing, though. And it, I, without those quiescent cells, we wouldn't be able to have the longevity that we do. Those dormant cells over time get called into action to replace aging cells. So that dormancy, the phase of dormancy is actually what allows our bodies 
to live as long as we do. And it's it's kind of like a it's a marathon versus a sprint kind of a you know kind right. of a distinction. Like if we want longevity, a portion of our bodies has to be just kind of chilling out for a while, you know, has to be dormant for a while. So hypothetically, um, if all of your dormant cells disappeared right now, what would happen to you? I mean, that's a- um, I mean, you would probably just be like a few organs that are rapidly, you know, that are rapidly proliferating. I, you know, I would imagine so, like you'd be mostly gone. Wow. So just their, yeah. like not their function, but their very existence is vital. Absolutely. Right. Right. Our, you know, our bodies would not be, wouldn't be what, what we are. Um, wow. Without these dormant cells, they're an important part of the biological community of a human body. They're absolutely vital. Even though that measurable product isn't there. And learning about this changed the way that I think about contribution because there is an essential contribution that all of our dormant cells are making but we can't really measure it in the moment. You know, you have to look over a long time span in order to see it. Um, So the way that we judge our contributions, the contributions that other people make in our communities, you know, the way that we judge those, we can't make judgments just based on what we can see and measure now that would be you know we would be missing the bigger picture the bigger picture shows us that over time every piece is participating and contributing to the whole yeah right i I mean that has such profound implications on politics the way that we approach community the way that we approach church and we we tend to especially in our country, live in a mode of the immediate. I mean, we run in four-year cycles, right? You know, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that's... uh, And it, I mean, it doesn't, it certainly doesn't jive with capitalism. You know, it doesn't. um, And that I, you know, the ways that capitalism shapes my views of the world, and I have to imagine for so many others in the Western world, especially, you know, the ways that that influences our view of what it means to be valuable. It's so profound. It's so deep. Um, so seeing another lens that that runs counter to that, just give it opens me up in so many ways. Right. I, mm-hmm. I love that. Like it's it's a hard pill to swallow personally. Uh, yeah, it is. It's so hard. Right. Because, you know, like I, I've been building my entire identity on what exactly. I contribute. Right. Exactly. Um, it's a tough one. Yeah. But it's also it's also, uh, you know, at least for me personally, and I hope for a lot of other people, it's also that glimmer of hope. Right. Like, oh, my oh I, I can actually exist without this constant internal struggle of. Am I bringing something to the table? And maybe just being at the table is enough. And that's, it's freeing and scary at the same time. Absolutely. And there's this sense, you know, every cell that's part of the body participates together, you know, and there's like, there's just this image 
of belonging. You know, there's this image of almost just by existence, there is belonging. There's dignity in every piece. And our bodies, there's no, like, there's no leader of our uh, biologically in our cells. You know, there's no leader that's like designated to go around and make sure everybody's doing their job. Like, there's, it's, reciprocity so you know each piece contributing and and working together supporting each other in the ways that they can you know and at that uh that just gives me it gives me hope and it gives me comfort that's so great well uh, Elizabeth, thank you so much for, for joining us this week and, uh, sharing a little bit about your book. Uh, how can people find you on the internet and your continued work? Right. The best way to find me online is to go to my website. It's elizabethjeffreesrights.com. And if you go there, um, I have a link to my email subscription list. So if you subscribe there, that's a great way to be the first to know um, about events surrounding this book release and my further work. Uh, You can find me on Twitter at EPJeff and you can find me on Instagram at EPJeffries. And also, I know that listeners of this podcast are spread out all over the US. I also have a few events related to my book launch in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, if anyone is in that part of the country um, in late July. So all of that information is on my website, elizabethjeffreeswrites.com. Sounds great. And we will make sure to put that in the show notes at irenacast.com slash 46. We'll have links to everything uh, that Elizabeth is a part of, including surrounding, including how to get the book, right? So what's the official release day of the book? Right, right. Release day is July 14th and you can find it on Amazon. And if you're so inclined, hit up your local bookstore and um, ask them to to stock it for you. That, That would be like above and beyond. But yeah, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, July 14th. Right. So as you're listening to this, this book is out right now. Uh, we will put a link in the show notes again at irenacast.com slash 146. So you can purchase this book. It is great. It is refreshing. It is something that, that deserves to be sat down with, especially if you're scientifically or if you're not scientifically minded like myself, mm-hmm. like you're just fascinated by it. It's a great, it's a great read and the parallels between how she intertwines her story into these amazing scientific insights is uh, is great. So this is a, a new book of parables that everyone should pick up. So uh, thanks again, and uh, we will see you all next time on Irenicast. Thanks for joining the conversation. 